The psalmist said it very well. I lift my eyes unto the hills. And then he asks the question, from where does my help come? And the answer, as we've heard sung, is my help comes from whom? From the Lord. From he who made heaven and earth. We lift our eyes to him today. You know, there are some rooms in the building with which you may not be as familiar as this one. If you're with us in Bible study, you know where your Sunday school room is. From time to time, you go to the administrative office for whatever reason. Uh, we have a prayer room. Some of you that are new to church may not know that. It's right back down this hall here, and it is used on a fairly regular, but maybe not regular enough basis. We're entering into a season, a special season of prayer beginning next week, and I've asked you to pray about our entering into that season of prayer for workers in the harvest field and also for the harvest itself. How many months until the harvest? Well, next week will be July, so July, August, September, October, about four months. And then in the fifth month, we will celebrate the conclusion of this season of prayer at Thanksgiving, harvest time. My prayer is that that will just be the beginning. This is the special emphasis in prayer. There's another room which you maybe don't go into that often, and it's the visitor center. It's right behind this wall here. And in there, over the last couple of years, Mary Morgan and others have uh, organized an effort to highlight the artistic talents of those of you in church, and there are a number of you. And I thank you for those of you that participated in that. This month, we have the paintings of Walt Kood. I encourage you to go in there and take a look at those. They're magnificent. He's a great artist, as many of you have that same kind of artistic talent. Think about that for a moment. Great works of art. If I ask you to think and to visualize right now the most famous painting in the world, close your eyes a moment. Do you see it? What is it? Well, you may pick the American Gothic with a pitchfork. You might picture Whistler's mother. You might picture uh, the painting of Jesus in the garden at the, door, at the gate. But probably most of you visualized the most famous painting. It is in the Louvre in the Hall of the States. Large enough room where thousands of people go every year. Millions have viewed it by Leonardo da Vinci, of course. Finished in 1503, it is what? The enigmatic smile of Mona Lisa. Yeah. If you take the top 10, and they're different surveys, it depends on the survey that you look at, but almost consistently it rates number one. And in the top 10 is another that he painted, and that is a fresco. Fresco in the monastery of St. Mary of Grace, that is Santa Maria della Grazia, in Milan. It's a fresco. Which picture is it? It's the Last Supper. A lot of mythical stories told about that, many of which are not true. One that he took many, many years to paint it and that the 
model that he used for Christ at the beginning was the same person that he found in a prison cell later, and it was the model for his painting of Judas. That is a mythical story. It only took him three years to paint the fresco. And probably amongst the top ten is also the fresco by Michelangelo in Sistine Chapel, the creation of Adam. Now, when we think about that, actually, all of these were painted within the space of about 15 years of each other. Right at the beginning of the 1500s, when Michelangelo did that, of course, he depicts God in heaven then creating Adam. And you focus on what in that picture? Well, you look at God, you look at Adam, but you focus on what? The hands, you know. Bud was telling me one day somebody was using this as iconic picture, you know, the hands and a kind of emblem for their, their enterprise, and he noticed that the hands were upside down. Mm. No, it's God that created Adam, not the other way around. Now, if we were able to see that picture right now, I would, I'm going to ask you the question anyway, but if you visualize that, there is an anatomical mistake in that picture, at least according to my biblical understanding of creation. Can you visualize the picture? It doesn't have anything to do with hands. It has to do with Adam, Adam. He's laying there like this, and the Lord's reaching down like that. Do you know what the anatomical mistake is? Yeah, some of you know. He has a what? He has a belly button. He has a navel. Now, it is possible that God created Adam with a navel. God can do anything he wishes. But to my understanding of uh, creation, it didn't happen that way. He didn't have an umbilical cord, you know. Hmm. I want to talk a little bit about navels today, about belly buttons. You know, Mona Lisa's on the second floor, which the, the French call the first floor. That's a little confusing. But on the ground floor underneath that, there's a large hall called, uh, I think the interpretation is the carousel hall, the carousel room. And in that, there are statuaries from Greek and Roman culture and history. And in there, there are four statues of gods from second century Roman era. They are called satyrs, but they look almost like complete human uh, figures. And they're all looking down. They're standing here looking down like this, gazing upon their what? Their navels. Now, there may be a good reason for that because originally they were not in the Louvre, in the carousel hall. They were in Rome at a palace of Albany, the Villa Albany in, in, in Rome, where they were supporting like atlases, you know, atlas supported the world. Like atlases, they supported a fountain. And they're standing there like that. And I can imagine that they have their heads bent over because the fountain's on their back. But the way that people look at it today is these are four Roman god satires that are navel gazers. Hmm. When you think of the word or the phrase navel gazing today, it has a pejorative kind of context. It describes people that are self-focused and self-absorbed, that only look at themselves. But if you look back into the history of navel gazing, it has a philosophic basis for it in Greek culture. Greek philosophers believed that navel-gazing was a productive and positive kind of enterprise or activity within which to engage. They, they, and it, it really did just the opposite of what we think navel-gazing is today. What they said is this, if you look and contemplate your belly button, it reminds you 
of some things. Actually, instead of the world centers on me, and by the way, they had a term for this, Amphalos. Amphalos is the navel. Skepsis, from which we get the term skeptic, which means to analyze critically. So Amphalos skepsis is gazing upon your navel critically and examining it to do what? To remind ourselves that we are to be humble, that we are in fact not self-made. There is a remnant that shows us that we had an origin in someone else. That we are not islands unto ourselves, but that we are connected with the world around us, that everyone, besides Adam and Eve, everyone has a navel, and everyone has a parent. Everyone is a child, a descendant of someone who gave them birth. So navel-gazing can have a good context. It reminds us to be humble, and it reminds us of our identity and our purpose in life. It is to serve someone, something greater than ourselves. But you know, Jesus didn't need to do that. Jesus did not need to be a navel-gazer. Have you ever wondered this? Did Jesus have a navel too? And the answer is what? Yes, why? Because he was a son of man. He had an umbilical cord that went to his mother who was a virgin. He was born as a human. He was a son of man. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He obeyed his parents who were his guides and his mentors. But he did not need to be a navel gazer in order to understand his identity and his purpose. The only person ever that walked the face of the earth that did not have to be a navel gazer. Or why? He also was the son of God. And when he was in search of his identity and purpose, he did not look at his own navel. He looked at whom? He looked at his father. He watched his father. And from seeing his father, he saw his identity as the son of God, and he saw his purpose as the savior of all humankind. As a son of God, he set his gaze and kept it constantly on his heavenly father. As a son of God, he observed the work of the father and he reduplicated it completely. As the son of God, he copied his father precisely. As the son of God, he then gave us the exact words that were breathed from the father into his ear and he gave them to us accurately. You know, we come to this story in John, the fourth chapter today. And by the time we come there, John has told us about that identity and that purpose already. In the first chapter, there are three things that are said about who he is. He is the word of God, and the word of God enables believers to come, become children of God. A little later in the first chapter, John describes him as, I saw the Spirit descend upon him like a, a dove and remain on him, and I'd give testimony that he is the what? The Son of God. And then later Nathaniel affirms that. You are the Son of God, and he gives a third identity. You're the King of Israel. And when we come to the third chapter, we see as he talks to Nicodemus, and he explains his purpose. And he says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that those who look upon him will be saved. So he's identified as the Son of Man by the time we come to the fourth chapter. And then John gives this testimony that he is the Savior of the world. For Jesus says in the third chapter, 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then John the Baptist gives this testimony of this son of God who is the Savior. That whoever believes in him will have eternal life, and whoever disobeys him will not see life. So by the time we come to the fourth chapter, it's very clear that John has given this testimony to us in this record, that he is the son of God, the king of Israel, the son of man, the savior of the world. By this time, we come to the fourth chapter. He has left the Jordan River after being baptized, collected his first group, small group of disciples, probably John, certainly Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and the group grows later. He goes to Galilee. He performs his first miracle in chapter two at Cana. He transforms the water to wine, and he reveals his glory to his disciples. And then we find him traveling to Jerusalem, and there he cleanses the temple. And in so doing, he, in a veiled sort of way, announces his resurrection. And then he encounters Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus that if you're going to enter the kingdom, you have to be what? Born again, and born of not only the water, but of the Spirit. And then he goes into the Judean countryside, and his disciples are not far from where John's baptizing at Enon near Salim. And it isn't Jesus who's baptizing, but his disciples are. And he becomes so popular that the Pharisees then begin to become worried about him. And so he leaves then Judea and heads on his way to Galilee. But he does not take the route through Perea and the Decapolis along the Jordan River. That takes three days longer. He goes through the mountain region that takes him through Ephraim and Manasseh, which, of course, is the territory of the Samaritans. And he comes to the location of today's story. Jacob's well, which is between the two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. It's on the east side, east of Shechem. There's a village, Sikar, that is not far away, just north of there, in front of Mount Ebal. And it's about noontime, the sixth hour. And his disciples have gone into the village to do what? To buy food for lunch. It's lunchtime. In this story today, we're not going to do the whole account of the Samaritan woman. I'm going to summarize it in a moment. But we see some remarkable things in this story at the end. It is an unlikely place. The habitation of the despised Samaritans. So it's an improbable story based on the place. It is an implausible story. It's an almost unbelievable story because the recipient of Jesus' words, unbelievably, is a woman of ill repute. It's not only an unlikely place and an unbelievable recipient, it is an unexpected harvest that comes. An incredible harvest, unlike when Jesus went to the fig tree and expected to find fruit and he found none. In this case, the disciples do not expect to find fruit, and there is an immediate and abundant harvest, and it's remarkably incredible. So we come to the story of the Samaritan woman, and we see in there that once again he reveals himself in different ways to her. First, his provider. He is the provider that will give her not just the water that comes out of the well that she's going to give him, but what kind of water? Living water. He's not only the provider, but he's a prophet. He, he sees into her life and he knows about her and he cares about her and he cares about us and he cares about you, no matter how sinful we are. He's not only the provider and the prophet, he is a priest. He tells her, you want to know how to worship? I will tell you as God's priest. You're to worship as we heard this morning in spirit and in truth. He's not only a provider and a prophet and a priest, 
He is the very person of God. It comes to the end of that story, and she says, I reckon that you're a prophet. We know that God is going to send his Messiah. And then he looks her dead square in the eye, and he says to her what? I am. I am he. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that he directly and personally and fully reveals his identity to anyone face to face. And he reveals it to a Samaritan woman. He is God incarnate, the I am, the Jehovah that has been born, not the Father, but the representation of Jehovah in human form. And we come to the text today at the end of that story. Would you stand for the reading of his word? Beginning in verse number 27. You see, at this point, then, after he had spoken to her, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Uh, This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, hmm, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And then Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months yet, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They are already white for harvest. May God bless the reading of his word, and let's have a seat. You see, Jesus in this story loves without constraints. You see, at the beginning of the passage that we read, the disciples come and they are what? They're amazed that he has been speaking with a woman. You see, this is unconventional, isn't it? Traditionally, this is out of bounds. It's an unlikely place that is Samaria. The Samaritans hated the Jews because John Hyrcanus and his Hasmoneans had destroyed their temple over 100 years before, almost 150 years before. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They called them dogs, half-breed descendants of Assyrians and Jews that were idolaters. Rabbi Eliezer in the late first century described it this way. He said, he that eats bread of the Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of pigs, of swine. They're no better than that. It's an unbelievable recipient, the woman. Now, she is like a fallen woman, but it's not just that. She's a woman, and they're amazed that he talks to her. They marvel. It says they're stunned at this Because you see, they come from a more conservative kind of Judaism. They're from the Aramaic background and the conservative Jews. In public, you did not talk with women. Now, Hellenistic Jews, it was a little more permissible. But for these folks where they come from, you don't talk to a woman in public. And especially if you're a rabbi. And you see, Jesus is their rabbi. Rabbi said you never talk to a woman in public, not even your wife. And you never talk to a woman about religious things. That's a waste of time. No, it's more than a waste of time. You see a little bit of chauvinism here? (laughs) It's more than a waste of time. You see, it detracts you from studying the Torah. And if you're not careful, that is the beginning of the road that leads to hell. This is the way that they looked at women. Yet Jesus talked with this woman publicly. 
You see, Jesus cared for those that are out of bounds. We see this all the time, and we need to be reminded of it. Samaritans, he healed a Samaritan leper. The hero of his story about mercy is the good, not Jew, not the good priest. It's the good Samaritan. He prevented James and John from calling down fire upon a Samaritan village when they would not receive them into the town. He cared for Samaritans. He cared for fallen women, the Samaritan woman, the woman caught in adultery four chapters later. The woman, one of the, one of the accounts in Matthew, the woman that anoints his feet is described as a sinner, as an immoral woman in Simon the leper's home. He cared about Samaritans. He cared about fallen women. He cared about foreigners. And he, he gave great credit to the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite, for her great faith. And the centurion, who had great faith that his servant would be healed. He cared for foreigners. He cared for the demon-possessed. Time and time and time, he exercised them. And thousands came out of legion. He cared for the unclean. He touched the leper to heal him. The woman with a hemorrhage of blood who was unclean, he let her. He knew that she was going to touch him. And yet he let her do it. Unclean. He befriended and he ate with tax collectors and what? And sinners. And Matthew was one of those in his inner circle. You see, Jesus was inclusive. No one was out of bounds for him. You know, one of the popular terms today is DEI. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jesus was a master of that. No one was excluded for Jesus So the question is raised here then, why in Matthew the 10th chapter, and you you heard that uh, Zechariah read that passage from Matthew 9, which is really pretty much a parallel passage for this. The harvest is great, and where are the harvest workers? And then he does what? He sends out the disciples into Galilee, and he tells them, do go only to the Jews, don't go to the Gentiles. And this raises questions. But folks... His intent was to take the gospel eventually to to the Gentiles. I think the reason that he does that is he is fulfilling the promise that was made to Abraham. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, he doesn't just say that all the families, all the nations, the Gentiles would be blessed. He says, through you, they will all be blessed. And so what he's doing is he's establishing a base from which then the disciples are to go out and to share with the Gentiles. It's very interesting, folks, when people would say that Jesus was intent at the beginning only of evangelizing the Jews. That cannot be true because it's very difficult and problematic to superimpose the gospel of John chronologically on top of the synoptics. Some would say that John is not chronological at all. I think it is. But we have to be careful about trying to put the events of John within the context of the synoptics. But it is my belief and my thinking that this encounter with a Samaritan woman probably happened before Matthew 10, before he sent his disciples out to the Galilean Jews. And if that's true, it tells us that from the very beginning, he had the intention of the gospel going to the Samaritans. He is laying a basis then for when he tells them, you are to go where? You're to go to Jerusalem and then to all Judea and Samaria. It's laying a basis then later, of course, for his evangelization of the Samaritans. For he tells his disciples at the end of Mark's gospel to do what? Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. You are to be witnesses to Jerusalem, all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the world. Folks, what does that mean? 
No one is out of bounds for Jesus. He loved everyone. And he charges us as we think about entering this season where we pray about harvesters and the harvest to be reminded of this. We must do the same. Anytime, anywhere, anyone, anyway. Paul said this, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might win some to the Lord. We do a pretty good job here at Gamble Street, I think, ethnically and background-wise. We have a global church. We have people from many nations. The question that we've got to ask is our community changes is do we do a good job of reaching the everyone's? As we have people that move into our community that may be dispossessed and disadvantaged and maybe homeless and the least of these, how effectively are we going to be in reaching those that are not like us, that seem to many people in our community to be out of bounds? We've got a woke environment. We've got pride all around us. And we look at that on one side and we say, that is anathema. Some would say that. And on the other side, we've got racist and sexist and chauvinist on the other side. And let's hope that we do not endorse their agenda either. If we're not careful, folks, we can be like ostriches and put our heads in the sand and ignore both and say those are out of bounds. What Jesus would do is he would embrace both people, persons from both of those cultures. He would not endorse racism on the one side. He, I do not think he would, in, he would endorse the most extreme uh, explanation of wokeness. But folks, he would love people that come out of those two communities, and he does. So as we pray for harvesters and as we pray for the harvest, we must pray for everyone that comes across our paths. There's a second thing, I think, in this story, and that is that Jesus feeds on the Father's will. In verse number 31, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, say, Rabbi, eat. Here's the food. We bought it. We brought it in from Sychar. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. And so the disciples began to say to one another, you know, did someone bring him food? You know, how did he get this food? There are a couple of spiritual principles here, I think, that are important. First of all, and the world does not understand these principles, and that's important for us to remember. First of all, Jesus was demonstrating what he said he was going to do. He came to fulfill and not abrogate the law and the Gospels. He comes to fulfill the Word of God, and he is demonstrating that now. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. He didn't just use that as a proof text against Satan when Satan was tempting him. Oh, he, he did quote it, and it was his defense against Satan. But it was, not, it was not just a phrase that he quoted from the Bible. He was living it out, you see. The word that he uses here, every word that comes from the mouth of God, when he quotes that then, in another context, is the hrema. It's not just the logos. It's not just the written word. It is a breathed word of God. You see the father whispers into the ear of the son all of the time. And he is living that out. He's demonstrating it, number one. A second principle behind this is his obedience to God's command has led him then to become the bread of life. He needed no bread because he was the bread. God sent him to be the bread from heaven. And when he says, I have food to eat, he's not just saying, I have food for me to eat. He's saying to them, I have food to eat. And he explains it later in John 6. And this food I give unto you, and you must eat my flesh, and you must drink my blood. You see, the disciples do not understand this. 
They, they're perplexed by it. But that's not unusual. The Samaritan woman was confused when he talked about the living water. Nicodemus didn't understand it when he said, you must be born both of the water and the spirit. You must be born again. He didn't understand it. Later, when he then tells the people after they have been fed, and then he describes that he is a bread of life, they didn't understand it when he said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they left him. You see, there is something spiritual going on here that the disciples do not understand. And we need to remember that. The gospel is based on spiritual principles that unsaved people do not understand. You see, the gospel is counterintuitive as we talk about the harvest in the next few months, as we seek for the Lord to save the lost, and we share the news of of the, the good news of Christ. We need to understand this. When it first falls on their ears, and maybe this morning as you're listening, as it falls on your ears, it's counterintuitive. The scripture is very clear about this. You see, natural man does not, and women do not perceive the things of God. Only when the Holy Spirit convicts and opens up the hearts and minds of men and women do they understand the things of God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. We need to be prepared for this. We need to be prepared as we put an emphasis on the harvest and evangelism. And as you share, there are going to be people that do not understand. There are going to be people that ridicule you for something that seems like that is antiquated and is outdated. We need to be prepared for that. And today, if you're listening to the message and you don't believe it, if you're a little uncomfortable about it, if you're troubled as you hear the word, or if you're sitting in this room and you're troubled by the word and you don't believe it, that's a good thing. Not that you don't believe it, but that you begin to be troubled by it, because I can tell you what it is. It is the Holy Spirit of God that is stirring your heart and your mind and your soul. And he's saying to you, there is a message here that the world does not accept, but it is my message. You see, Jesus' real food was to do what? To do the will of the Father. Jesus said to them, "This this is a thing they didn't understand. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish it. You see, his consuming passion, his purpose was to do this. And he says it three other times in the gospel of John. You see, because I speak the word of the Father, it bears witness to who I am. Because I speak to the word of the Father, I do his will and not my own. Because I speak the word of the Father, the Father comes alongside me and he helps me to accomplish the things that please him. You see, this was his passion. This was his purpose, was to do the will of the Father. So the question is this, what is the will of the Father? And we know that. The will of the Father in John 6, as he talks to the crowd about the living bread, he says the will of the Father is simply this, it is eternal life. My Father wants to save, and he wants me to raise up those that believe in me. This is my purpose. I came to save and not to condemn came into the world not to condemn it, but to save it, that the world might be saved through him. And he is accomplishing it. At this very moment, outside the village of Sychar, near Jacob's well, he is accomplishing it. You see, John 5 says this. He says a little bit later in the next chapter, you see, my father is working even until now, and I am also working. I am accomplishing his will. That is my purpose. In John 17, when he preaches his high priestly prayer, He says what? You see, Father, I have glorified you by accomplishing your work so that you might be glorified. And then on the cross, 
His last words, seal it to telestai. It is finished. I have accomplished it. You notice he doesn't say, I accomplished it. He doesn't say, I will accomplish it. He says, I have accomplished it. It has been finished. He has finished the Father's work, but it continues to have abiding results. He and the Father are continuing to work all around us. The Father is still at work, and the Son engages in that work. And in the harvest, He is calling His disciples to come alongside and to do that. You see, I think this says to us, our food, our passion, our purpose ought to be to do the will of God. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. When we pray that, we need to mean it. When we pray thy will be done, we need to expect it to happen. When we pray thy will be done, we need to do it. Because you see, that is the mark of a true disciple. Jesus says the day is going to come when people come and they say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I didn't know you. What's the difference? Those who do the will of the Father, I will say that I know. You see, that's the mark of being part of the true family of Christ. His family is outside the house, and they tell him, you know, he's teaching his disciples around him, the men and women gathered around. They say, your, your mother and brothers are outside. And he said, who's my family? My family is whoever does the will of my Father. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, whoever does the will of God, that is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, Jesus loves without constraints, and Jesus was driven. He was fed by doing God's will. Last of all, Jesus urges us to see things God's way. You see, this is the incredible and unexpected harvest. Jesus was watching the Father intently, and he joined him in the harvest business. In John 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. You see, Jesus saw things as they really were. Because he kept his eyes on the Father, who is the master and the providential care of all reality. And he watched the Father, and he saw behind the veil of worldliness. He saw what was really going on, not just as they appeared on the service. He saw this by watching the Father and understanding his purpose and his identity. He had a spiritual vision that the disciples didn't have. You see, things weren't as they really appeared. He said, you say they're four months to the harvest. What was that about? That was a proverb in that day. It was an agricultural proverb. It meant that normally what happens is you plant the seed, and it takes about four months for the seed to grow and to produce an abundant harvest. Hmm. Another way of saying this is you need to be patient. You plant the seed and you wait. Be patient. Another way of putting it is Rome wasn't built in a day. So you get this idea. And this is the attitude the disciples have. But Jesus urged them to take a closer look. He says... Lift up your eyes. Lift them on high. Stop navel-gazing. Hmm. Lift them up and, 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 and look totally from beginning to end. The, the verb there means comprehensively. Look beyond yourself. Look out there. And look on the fields. Don't just see them. Don't just look at them but gaze upon them and intently look into the purpose of what's going on. Look at them with spiritual eyes. Folks, you know, corporations throughout this nation 
churches throughout this nation and around the globe in secular life and in spiritual life, when they lay out a business plan or when they lay out the plan for what they're going to do in the church, they always talk about goals and objectives and they're driven by what? A vision. A vision. And that's what Jesus is saying. Do you have a vision? As we pray about the workers that come in to help with the harvest, as we pray about the harvest, folks, we've got to have a vision and it cannot be our vision. It's got to be God's vision. You see, Jesus refuted this idea. He said it's not four more months to the harvest. No, in fact, he goes back to Amos. And Amos said there's going to come a time when the reaper meets the harvester. And the harvester meets the reaper. What he's saying is there's going to come a time when the seed is planted and instantly and abundantly the harvest is going to be there. Amazing. And Amos closes his book by promising this great abundance that is immediate. And Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy right here. For you see what has happened. He has just shared the gospel with a Samaritan woman. I am the Messiah. I am the good news. Don't wait four months. Disciples look out there. What's happening? Look at I'm coming from Sychar. Look at them. They're coming to find out about this news that she has shared with them. And it's not ironic that this is probably about the end of April, the beginning of May, at the end of the barley season, and when the oats and the wheat are turning white in the fields. Just as the fields are white, he's saying, look, don't be patient about this. I know we need to be patient. Don't be patient so that you become lethargic. Have a sense of urgency about it. When you plant the seed, it is not you that caused the growth. When you water the plant, it is not you that causes the growth. And you see, Jesus understood this. Jesus understood that all along, it wasn't he who had been nurturing the citizens of Sychar. All along, it was the Father. The father had been at work all along. He had been preparing the hearts and the minds of that Samaritan woman to receive the seed. He had been working in the hearts and the minds of the citizens of Sychar. Folks, this is the only time that I can find in the gospel that there's a great revival. And where does it happen? It happens in Samaria of all places. Who would have ever expected it? But the reason that it happens is the father had been at work. The Father continues to work, and I work alongside Him. And Jesus plants the seed, and what happens? Instantly, there's a harvest. Folks, as we pray for the harvest, don't wait until October. Don't wait until November to celebrate it. The harvest is upon us, Jesus is saying. So why is it that churches across this nation... Do not get this message. Why is it that churches across this nation are not urgent about the harvest? Why is it that there are Christians all across this nation that are not urgent and see with a spiritual vision the harvest that is there? I'll tell you very quickly why I think it's the case. They're worried. They're worried about their everyday needs. They are like seed that has been planted in thorny soil and it grows up and it chokes them because of their worldly concerns and the desires for things of the world. That's what's happening to the disciples. They're worried about what? Eating lunch. Sometimes it's because we're lazy. Folks, we have come out of COVID and we have become couch potatoes. We like to binge watch our TV programs. 
And there's some that haven't really gotten back to, quote, going to church again. Now, I know that there's some people that are homebound and you can't come. And if you're watching this morning, we are glad that you're with us. But folks, the people of God gather every week. And God calls the people of God to come, to support each other, to gather together, and then go out. Christians in America have become lazy, and not just because of COVID. Christians in America have become disengaged and not involved. Oh, they're connected. They have their social media, and you know what they are. They're connected, but they're not engaged. There are people that will sit in the same room and talk to each other by looking at their iPhones. We're disengaged from one another. We have created cells and islands. We forget each one of us has a navel. Sometimes we are self-absorbed. Sometimes we are navel gazers, and it's all about me, my, and I've said it many times, and you believe it and know it. We live in a self-indulgent, selfish society. And folks, it has affected Christians as well. Sometimes it's because of prejudice, and that prejudice may be because of disdain and hatred for another, but usually that prejudice doesn't manifest itself that way. Usually it's because we're uncomfortable and awkward with people that are unlike us. Sometimes it's because we're like ostriches. We see the problems in our nation today. We see the wokeism on one side and the racism on the other side. We see a nation that is divided politically. We see ourselves almost at the brink of cultural civil war, and we say these are bad times, and what we do is we disengage and we avoid. We're afraid to speak up because if we say something in public, you know, we might be chastised and rebuked. And there's a last reason. We become despondent. We become depressed. We feel defeated. In this modern world today, is the gospel still relevant? Can it compete out there? And my word is, the word of God is, rather. Yes, it can. Remember, friends, two things. You know, God's calling us to do what Jesus called his disciples to do. We need to let the will of the Father become our driving passion and our food, like Jesus. We need to lift up our eyes and look upon the fields with a godly vision. Be aware this next week of the loss that come across your paths. Look with a vision that is urgent not in October or November, but now and tomorrow. Have a sense of urgency. Look with a sense of intent to do something about it. And remember this. When you feel discouraged, friends, when you feel despondent, when you feel a little depressed, and when you ask, with all that's going on in our nation and around the world, can the gospel still compete? Remember this. He says, not only lift up your eyes, but lift up your heads. Lift up your heads, people of God, for your redemption draws nigh. He's coming again. He is victorious. He is victorious and he is going to send his angels to the four corners of this earth, to the four winds of this earth, and he's going to gather his elect from all around the globe, and they're going to be millions and millions from the past ages and the current time, and he is going to establish his kingdom. Our purpose, being the children of God, is to make sure that as many people as you meet this next week are involved in that harvest when he comes. Do not be discouraged. Let not your heart be troubled. He's coming again. Lift up your heads, and remember this finally.
The Father is still at work. He's still working. And the Son has come alongside Him and He is working. There are residents of Sikar out there in your workplace, in the school, maybe at, behind the counter at the cafeteria or cafe where you go, at Starbucks or wherever, that are hungry for the gospel. And the Lord is working in those lives. He's preparing them to receive the seed. So go be seed planters. Go nurture those plants and be harvesters in the field with the encouragement that God is already at work. Would you pray with me? Father, our prayer this morning is that you will encourage us as we lift up our eyes and as we lift up our eyes to you and as we look on the harvest field, help us to be aware and have a sense of urgency and do something about it to share the good news that your son Jesus Christ came as Savior not to condemn the world, but that whoever believes in him will not perish, that he gave his life on the cross to pay for our sins so that we will not perish if we believe in him, but we will have everlasting life. And our prayer is this morning, if someone is listening here or online or wherever they are, that if they have a troubled spirit, they do not know where to turn as your Holy Spirit stirs them and convicts them that they will respond to the good news that the answer for the trouble in their hearts, the answer for the worry in their hearts is Jesus Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.